Hi, everybody. I'm Patrick McEnroe, and this is Holding Court. All right, time for a Tennis Tuesday here on Holding Court. And uh, my good buddy, Peter Bodo, who many of you have heard before on my podcast. And uh, if you read Hardcourt Confidential, my book, which uh, Peter co-wrote with me, I wouldn't have been able to get it done without him. That's clear. Uh, So he texted me. He wanted to ask me a few questions about the French Open. I said, that's fine. But as long as we can record and, and make it into my podcast as well. So are you okay with that, Peter, I assume? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's it's one big party, and we're always we always have good chats. So it should be for <laughs> posterity, right? Yeah, I think I had you on. Uh, was it was it around the Djokovic issue? Um, or there've been a few. I remember the last time I had you on, it was very uh, well received by my holding court fan. So, what would you like? Good. to what, So we're we're recording. What would you like to talk about today, Mister Bodo? Well, you know, uh, what is it, what else is everybody, what is everybody else talking about anyway? It's uh, Carlos Alcaraz, but there are right. two kind of specific areas that I think are interesting. And I'm going to put you a little bit out of a hot seat here. I think your fan's going to like that. Um, that, and I wonder if you were a coach and your guy was going to play Alcaraz on clay at the French open, what do you tell him? Wow. Uh, pray. Um, you know, that would be the first thing. No, you're, it, you're, it's amazing because, uh, there really doesn't appear to be any weakness at all in his game. I mean, he can be a little bit inconsistent at times. You know, he can miss some shots. Uh, you know, the, the truth of the matter, Peter, is that you're going to have to go out there and grind it out against him. Uh, he's not a huge server. I mean, he's a good server. He mixes it up. Uh, you know, he changes his positioning a lot on the serve. He'll mix in the serve and volley. Uh, but the short answer is you got to go out there and just play because he doesn't have, you know, if you're playing Federer, obviously you're going to, you know, stay away from the forehand, try to get it high to his backhand, which we've seen Nadal do. Rafa doesn't really have a weakness on clay, you know, on a quicker court, you can say, you know, sir, you know, try to serve in volley a little bit, mix it up. Um, Novak, maybe you can out grind him. You know, if he's a little bit off, there's been guys that have been able to, you know, get errors from him. Alcaraz is, uh, you know, he's sort of, he's taking the game. I think he's in, in the process of taking the game to another level, which is amazing considering what we've seen the last uh, 15, 20 years with those three other guys. But he really doesn't appear to have a weakness other than sometimes I would say at this point, uh, Peter being inconsistent. And if you're one of the big, the big guys going up against him, I think you still have to hold out hope that arguably maybe he'll get tired if it gets into a, you know, really grueling physical type of match. Yeah. So, you know, what an interesting question that raises on the front of um, the next level of player that we're kind of happens evolutionarily in tennis. I mean, does, does that, does given how airtight his game is, uh, if everybody else can kind of achieve that level, the game suddenly then all really becomes all about the mental aspect of it, doesn't it? Well, I think it does to a certain extent, but I think there's very few players that can um, elevate their game anywhere near this level. So even as I said, you know, in talking about the other the other great players, I'm not going to say they have a weakness, but they have something that you can sort of go after a bit. Um, and with Alcaraz, it doesn't appear, again, that he has that technically speaking. It's almost like he's a – if you just take what he's doing now – and you compare just his style of play, you know, right-handed, big forehand, 
two-handed, solid two-handed back, and maybe not quite the versatility on the slice yet as a Djokovic. Um, but he basically plays a similar kind of game, I would say, to Djokovic, but just more electric, you know, more pa- more powerful in some ways. Um, does he move as well as Djokovic? Pretty darn close. Can he hit the ball bigger on the run? I would say probably yes. Um, has he shown the tactical ability of Djokovic, you know, in the sort of strategic brilliance, you know, it's still, I think a little early to tell, um, but certainly his ability to play the drop shot is obviously something he's taken to another level, particularly off the forehand side and his ability to come in. I mean, Djokovic has become a great volleyer over the years, but he didn't start out that way. This guy already appears to be not only a really good volleyer, but very comfortable at coming forward, particularly at big moments. Mm, yeah. Interesting. Um, Patrick, the other thing is, you know, sometimes these guys come in and they, um, they, you know, they, they have a great job, like Becker at Wimbledon when he first won Wimbledon and, and uh, Bjorn Borg when he first appeared. Uh, do you get this, um, you get this sense that these guys are just living on cloud nine, you're in a zone and that's the end of it. Is that possible that that's what's happening here with Alcaraz too? And that he, we're going to see a different lowered level as he gets adjusted to the tour? I would don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think he's a special guy. I mean, I think those other players you mentioned are pretty darn special also in, in Becker, uh, obviously Borg, you know, when Rafa won the, won the French as a teenager, Pete Sampras, you know, they, they turned out to be legendary players. Um, and I believe that we're going to see that with Alcaraz as well. I mean, unless something crazy happens, like he gets injured, um, or has some sort of mental issues, which which doesn't appear to be anywhere near possible with what we've seen so far. So, no, it's it's extremely rare, Peter, as you know, um, having followed tennis so closely over, over your career, that you're going to see somebody do this well at this age, particularly on the men's side, and then be uh, what my buddy Cliff Drysdale would call a flash in the pan. You know, that just doesn't happen mm-hmm. for someone to win this much this early, win a couple of Masters events already as an 18, then a 19-year-old, and and be, I mean, can you can you believe it? He's actually going to walk into the grounds at Roland Garros, okay? Right now as we speak, this 19-year-old's going to walk in there, start prepping, and he's going to be the favorite to win the tournament. Okay, you've got Rafael Nadal. I know he's a little bit dinged up, who's won it 13 times and just won his 21st major, who's absolutely owned the joint. Then you've got Novak Djokovic, who's who's been you know arguably the greatest player we've ever seen, particularly in the last ten years, winning multiple majors, including two French Opens, and and beating Nadal in an epic uh, semifinal last year, and now finding his game again, winning in Rome, getting back on track, and yet still, the odds makers, it's it's close, you know, still have Alcaraz as a favorite. Now I'm myself, if I'm if, if you force me to go out on a limb and make a pick right now, it's still hard for me to pick against Novak Djokovic right now because he's, he's looking mm-hmm. like he's peaking. He's got the matches now under his belt. His fitness appears to be back. Normally, all things being equal at the French Open, of course, you would say Nadal. But all things aren't equal with the fact that he appears to be suffering with the foot and the injury issues coming in. So I'm, you know, I'm just not sure he's going to have the, what he needs to go all the way. That being said, uh, the odds makers who uh, seem to know even more than we do, 
they still have Alcaraz as a favorite. That's just amazing to me. Yeah, and, and um, how do you think that might impact Alcaraz? Is there is there a danger there to him in terms of how much insane pressure this could put on the kid? Well, I think that's that is the X factor that you can't quite um, you can't determine yet. Uh, it doesn't appear from what we've seen from him um, that that's going to affect him. But again, it's it this is this has never happened to him before. You know, he won Miami. That's a big tournament. He made a great run in Indian Wells, losing to Rafa there. Nobody expected him, you know, going into Miami. You know, of course, people knew he could do some damage. Uh, and certainly then in Madrid, you're like, okay, he's going to go through, you know, a pretty informed Nadal, though he did, you know, look nicked up as the match went on. A definitely informed Djokovic, you know, to beat him and then just destroys Zverev, who's three in the world. I mean, make him look like he didn't even belong out there. To do that back-to-back-to-back is pretty darn impressive. But again, he wouldn't have been the favorite going into that tournament. So this is Mm -hmm. the first time he's actually the favorite. And you put on top of that that this is a major. So that's the X factor. But I think if he plays his way into the tournament, which you would expect him to do comfortably, I don't see him, you know, getting picked off early. I just think he's too good. Um, so he's, he's going to have to be somebody good that's going to actually make that pressure become a factor. Um, I don't see that happening in the first two to three rounds, maybe in the round of 16, you know, if he gets a real good clay court player in, the, in round four, someone that's been there many times, maybe then that could wear on him a little bit. But I'm reaching for straw. I'm, I'm reaching here because I don't see anything that have, have told me thus far that he's going to feel that. But we, we shall see. You know, it's kind of interesting, too, you know, is that given everybody's talking about uh, and, you know, it, you know, especially the pundits who are, you know, knee deep in tennis, they're talking about how this kid is really different and how he could potentially shape the game and maybe even, you know, impact the future of the game. And so, you know, you look at something like the m- number of drop shots he hits and suddenly it looks like everybody's getting drop shots left and right. I mean, is this is this kind of is, is he already impacting the game? And if so, what do you think is impact on the game will be. Well, I think that was already starting to happen a lot, but I think he's, he's definitely taking it to another level. So I think you're going to see that more. I even saw someone in a challenger tournament, uh, Pete hit a hit a, like a short, not underhand, but overhand serve like a drop uh-huh. shot overhand serve because you know, the player, because of the power and the pace of the game now, particularly on the men's side, you know, you've got guys playing so far deep in the court, a la Nadal, um, all up and down every level that, uh, you know, the, the, the short balls can be very effective, obviously off the drop shot, particularly if you can do it off the forehand where, you know, you wind up as if you're going to hit a big, heavy forehand, which Alcaraz has. And then at the very last second, you come under the ball, you know, it's a, a little easier to disguise it with a two handed backhand. Uh, the forehand mm-hmm. is harder to disguise it. You've got to be incredibly agile and quick with your thought process and the racket to really do it well. Um, so, yeah, I think the short answer is yes, but I, I, th- I think we started to see more of that in the game already because of the positioning of so many players so far. I mean, that's why we started to see the underhand serve. You know, now, you know, that it started as like a little bit of a joke, but now, mm-hmm. you know, why not use it like as a, as a strategic ploy? You know, a really good, you know, practice your underhand serve, not to mention you're getting ready to hit a regular serve and you just sort of pop it in, you know, with like a quick motion. I mean, I think we're going to see more players doing that. 
Yeah, I've been lobbying for that most of my life, actually. I've written, I don't know how many columns saying, you know, nothing wrong with the underhand serve. There's nothing underhanded about the underhand serve, right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> well, you said it perfectly. So uh, do we, so here's an interesting, interesting one. I mean, is, is Iga Swiatek possibly the Carlos Alcaraz of the WTA? Well, I think she's even, I mean, uh, to, to be honest, I think she's even better from the standpoint of, you know, the rest of the field. I mean, I, I can't remember. I mean, I know Ashley Barty was a pretty solid favorite going into the Australian Open. Um, and obviously there are times in Serena's, you know, the, in the middle of her prime when she was huge favorite at, at the Wimbledon, for example, at the open, I can't remember a time in recent memory that someone goes into a major, this heavy of a favorite on the women's side. I mean, I, I, I think I tweeted it about a month ago, uh, you know, it's a clay court season was just starting. I don't know how anyone's going to win a set again. How could anybody beat this, this, this woman on clay? She, when I first saw her play, Pete, a couple years ago, I was like, I haven't seen any woman player hit with that much spin and pace. Now, more importantly, spin, because there's obviously been a lot of players that can hit the ball big and relatively flat off the ground uh, in women's tennis over the years. That's sort of been become what the women's game is, right? Just go big, hit big off the ground. Um, obviously, Serena did it all, but Serena didn't play with anywhere near the sort of topspin and acceleration of the racket that this uh, woman plays with. Off not only the forehand, you can make an argument, well, Sam Stozer when in her prime when she won the U.S. Open, she had that great whippy forehand and could kick to serve. Very few female players in history have been able to get that kind of movement on the ball. This person, Iga Sviantek, gets it on like every shot. I mean, forehand and the backhand too. I mean, the backhand's a little flatter, but it's it's just remarkable the speed of of of, of racket she can generate, and then get those RPMs on her shots. And now she's finding, you know, sort of her comfort zone or her consistency because she's a remarkable athlete. I mean, moves incredibly well. And when you, uh, when I watched her a couple of years ago, I was like, I don't, nobody's going to stop her. And she took her a while. It's taking her some time to pull it together as far as matching and match out and, and, you know, understanding that she can play at 70% basically and be pretty much anyone. Uh, but now she's playing with this confidence. Uh, I'm, I'm really happy for women's tennis that she stepped to the forefront because Ash Barty all of a sudden retires after, you know, winning Wimbledon last year, winning the Australian open, being the solid number one, you know, the first time we've had that in women's tennis in a while. And she sort right. of says, I'm retiring. I'm stepping away. And then you're like, Oh man, what's going to happen now? And, you know, Igas Fiantic just steps to the forefront and has distanced herself in a big way. So, um, you know, she's had a couple of years now where she's gotten used to being in the position, you know, when she won that first French open, you know, she struggled. She was a little inconsistent for a while, but I think she's found that comfort zone with where she is, where her game is to now it's, I mean, I'm looking through the top 10 women. It's hard to imagine anybody beating her at the French open. I mean, Sakari, you know, she had the great run last year. She's athletic enough, but she doesn't have the same, I don't know, shot selection control, I think, that Sviantek has. I mean, Contivate mm -hmm. is five in the world, but she's not, you know, a great clay court player. Sabalenka, we've seen what happened to her just in the last couple of days in the Rome final. I don't think she has the versatility, the speed. 
Um, so it's hard to imagine Bedosa. I mean, she's got the f- athleticism. She's not nearly as quick as, as Sviantek, but she's got a lot of firepower and she's a you know, good, good mover on clay, but I don't, I haven't seen anybody with this fast twitch type of muscle that Sviantek mm-hmm. has not only in the legs, but in the hands as well. That's just, it's amazing to watch. And Jabur? Well, Jabur is, is, you know, she's had an amazing run these last couple of weeks and, maybe would have given Sviantek a little bit of a better match if she hadn't played that much. So I think she's someone, she's got the kind of game with her variety that could cause you trouble. You know, if you're Sviantek, if you're a little bit off, she's going to drop shot you. She's going to play, you know, she's going to move the ball around a bit. She can come in. So she would be someone that I would think, you know, if Sviantek's a little bit off, if it's one of those cold, you know, wet, damp days in Paris that we're see, what we've seen, you know, you're playing till late at night. It's a little drizzly. The courts get heavy. You know, you could see somebody like that maybe giving her some trouble. But if she's on and playing her B, her B plus game, I, I still think she's, you know, going to roll. You you could easily win the tournament without losing a set. That's how good I think yeah. she is now. You know, what's funny about that is I try to see sometimes watch these matches through the eyes of somebody who knows nothing uh, as opposed to me who knows next to nothing about these, about these matches. And, you know, she, Shrantik is not an imposing physical presence. You don't look at her and say, well, I can see why she's really good. I think if you look at it with those eyes, I mean, people in the game kind of do, but you know, she's not like a specimen by any stretch, is she? Well, I would disagree a little bit and I usually don't with you, Pete. Um, uh, I think if you, when you, I guess maybe cause I am an insider and I've watched her up close. Uh, I mean, to me, she's just an unbelievable athlete. I guess if you're just look at her, you just see her walking down the street. Maybe you wouldn't, you wouldn't think so. I mean, she doesn't have that type of presence that even, you know, Sabalenka has, or, you know, Muguruza, they're big, strong, um, right. you know, women, obviously Serena and Venus, obviously as well. Uh, so I get that point, but when I watch her, and when, again, I'm watching like the movement of the racket and the footwork and the quickness and, you know, she slides into shots off both wings, you know, forehand and the back. I mean, she slides out to the backhand like she's Djokovic, you know, with that sliding mm-hmm. to end. It's a, it's incredible to watch. And so uh, I, I think she is so athletic. And now that she's kind of corralled her power and her spin, uh, Honestly, I think she's almost unbeatable. I mean, I bested three is different. So you can have someone, as I said, you get off to a slow start. You know, that's why part of the reason why Djokovic, Nadal, Federer have been so great in majors over the years is because, you know, you sort of have a set, set and a half to work with in best of five. You don't have that in the women's game. Um, so there is that. X factor that makes it, you know, maybe more difficult for the, to just go in and say it's a, it's a lock, but she's as much of a lock as I've seen going into a major in a long time. Wow. Absolutely. That's interesting. So, you know, when I was talking to my editors and stuff about this, I, I kind of always position this given what's been happening is potentially the most interesting French open in recent memory. Is that, is is that a fair description? Do you think, um, there's just so much going on. It seems. Well, I'm, I, you know what? I am so excited about this, and I always, obviously, you know me, get excited for all these tournaments, and particularly the majors. But uh, I agree with you. I mean, I think I think that this has got the makings. When you look at what 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 these, let's look at the men first. You look at Nadal and what he was able to do with the Australian, 
And you look at his, you know, just incredible record over his career at the French, his greatness, winning it the way he did in Australia. Then you look at, you know, all the, the saga that's been Djokovic for the last, I mean, go back, go back to when Djokovic got defaulted at the U.S. Open. Okay, in 2020, or is that 2021? Mm-hmm. 20, uh, 20, 2020, when he got 2020, 2020 when he got deeped, and then you're thinking, what's what's going to happen? He wins three majors the next year, and then loses in that you know final of the U.S. Open to Medvedev last year, and then what happens with the vaccination in Australia and that whole saga, and then him not being able to play? Is he going to play again? He sticks to his guns. You know, he doesn't get vaccinated. I don't agree with that, but that's, you know, he made his decision and he suffered the consequences of that decision. Mm-hmm. And now that the world is sort of changing, you know, to where, okay, people can move around. Um, he's now back playing and able to compete and he's taking his lumps. You know, he's taking his lumps in his comeback. He was not easy. He was exhausted in a couple matches. He didn't, you know, that was, who was that Djokovic playing in Monte Carlo? You're like, who is this guy? And lo and, be, lo and behold, he just, you know, he, he worked his way back to where, you know, now he wins Rome, just beating, beating Sitsipas, who he played in the final last year. And you're like, okay, you know, this guy can get back on track. We had all, it was a given that he was going to end up with, you know, 23 to 25 majors, right? After he uh, got to 20 and tied the other two. And now it's like, oh, well, hold on a second. Um, you know, this is another thing. Now you get this young guy who's taken tennis by storm. I mean, let's be honest. This guy has taken the tennis world by storm, not because of, uh, you know, his personality or because, wow, he's got, you know, some firepower or he had a big win. No, because the guy's just won a couple of huge tournaments, okay? And he's beaten these all-time legends in, like, tough, grinding matches. Uh, And so he's got it all. And now he's the favorite. And then Sitsipas, who's been darn good on clay, really good on clay in the last couple of years, he's like almost an afterthought. He's the fourth favorite to win. And I, I still think he could make a huge run, and I, I wouldn't count him out. And then you've got Zverev, and he, what, he, what he must be thinking to himself, like he thought he was going to be, you know, number one, number two. Now he's lucky if he's going to be, you know, finish in the top five this year. If the other guys stay healthy and Alcaraz looks like he's a lock to be, you know, finished top three, maybe number one. So, uh, and, and, and the other players, you know, the Medvedev and the Rublev and the Russian situation with them not being able to play Wimbledon. And it's like, okay, well, at least Medvedev, Rublev, they can play. Sabalenka can play at the French. Um, that's not their best. I mean, Rublev can play on clay. Medvedev, this is worst surface by far. So he's coming back from a hernia injury as well. Then you got other younger guys, you know, like Sinner and some of the other young guys in there, Hercotch, Chris, you know, Rude, Casper Rude, who I love on clay. A uh, lot of stories. And I think you're going to see a couple of those young guys, other than Alcaraz, be in the mix in this French Open. Um, and let's hope that they're in the mix and let's hope, you know, whether it's Rafa, Djokovic, I mean, it could be an epic, really epic French open. And on the women's side, it, to me, it's all about Iga. I mean, I, can anybody threaten her? Uh, can any of the Americans, you know, Jesse Pagula has been the best American thus far this year. Danielle Collins, of course, making the final of the Australian. They're the two highest ranked Americans at the moment. Can you, mm-hmm. you going to believe it? I mean, Serena Venus are, you know, barely ranked anymore. Naomi Osaka, I think is like 48 in the world, whatever she is. The biggest names in women's tennis are not even really in the conversation about winning it. Coco Goff 
is she going to make a breakthrough? You know, she's only 18, but we've sort of been, I think we've expected more from her in the last 18 months or so. Uh, so, you know, a lot of storylines and you mentioned, you know, Jabor, what about a, what about an Arab woman, you know, making it all the way? That would be how unbelievable would that be as a story. Exactly. So, so I think there's a lot of good stories on the women's side as well. Um, although it's clear that it's Iga who's the heavy favorite. Yeah, it's nice to see Anna Samova uh, playing well. And, you know, maybe if Kennan can get herself back together, that would give the U.S. a pretty good presence. But it looks to me like the U.S. Is, has reasonable players going into, into this one, as, as you say. Well, Anissa Mova is a good one. She has played well, and she had a good tournament last week. Kennan, I wouldn't ex- – I'm just hoping to see Kennan get back, you know, get back on track. She's had a rough go with injuries and surgery. So let's hope she can get it together. I don't expect that to happen at the French, to be honest. But I do, no, no. I do think Coco Goff is somebody that certainly could make a run. Uh, Madison Keys, you know, Sloane Stevens, what's going to happen with them? Do they have anything, you know, anything left in, the, in big tournaments? Um, but a whole host of other women that, uh, you know, it, it could be like anybody could get deep in the tournament. You know, before I'd say anybody could win the tournament on the women's side. Uh-huh. Now I feel like this Iga and everybody else. But when you talk about everybody else, I mean, you could see anyone. I mean, Krajikova is two in the world. I mean, right. we haven't even thought about her. And if she doesn't go, you know, deep, she's going to lose all her points. She's going to drop, you know, big time in the rankings, which isn't that surprising in what we've seen in, in the recent past of women winning majors and not able to back it up. Whoop. Holding court, Patrick Macron, Peter Bodo here alongside as we find our connection. You still there, Pete? Yeah, I'm here. You right. got me. I hear you. Yeah, I lost it for a Good. second, but I did a little, you know, reset as we call it in the uh, in the uh, media business. We reset. So, what else you got for me? The gods are messing with us. Really, only there's one other issue. I think it'd be it, I'd like to get your take on. Rafael Nadal has got has made some headlines, although he's tried not to. He's been very discreet and very low key about it. But you know, talking about how uh, he seems to favor the ATP, um, he, he's against the ban of Russian and Belarus players from Wimbledon. He thinks it, he shouldn't be. He, they're his colleagues. He feels, and he's got to st- stand up for them. And I'm wondering uh, how you feel about that particular issue yourself. Well, I've, I've, I have very mixed feelings about it, but I've come down on the side of Wimbledon after having um, really th- tried to think it through just myself and talking to people and, and reading as much as I could. But I have to tell you, one of my conversations that really affected me and my thought process on this, Peter, was with Cliff Drysdale. And I called him and I asked him specifically about it. I was doing some podcast stuff on it and some CNN stuff. And, and, um, you know, I initially, my thought was, this is the, this is not right. You know, you can't penalize these individual players, uh, for all the reasons that Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic have said and others, which is, it's, it's hard to, you know, not feel sympathy. I mean, it's, it's impossible not to feel sympathy for the, the the players that are in the middle of this. At the same time, what Cliff said to me, and this is one of the reasons I reached out to him because I knew that he'd gone through something similar being from South Africa. You know, he wasn't right. allowed, he wasn't allowed as a citizen of South Africa with a South African passport to travel to many countries 
to be able to play mm-hmm. tennis. Now, you know this better than anyone. He was allowed to go to the countries where he could play the majors, so not as, as uh, you know, serious as this one, not being able to go play Wimbledon. Um, but, you know, what he said, which I agree with, with is the fact that, you know, there, this is such – it's so horrendous what's going on in the Ukraine. It's so atrocious. Um, it's so beyond anything I think you and I have seen in our lifetime, maybe people a little older than us and, you know, that got through World War II or people that have been through other um, conflicts in different parts of the world. But as far as global, you know, the Europe- European side of this, um, that this is a once in, a, you know, hundreds years and, and, we have to use we meaning the 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 Western world or the the civilized world, if you will, every tool that we have in our toolbox to try to create some some change and make some impact or make a statement, make a moral statement that this is not right. This is this is beyond the pale of what what should could happen in instances of war, conflict, and so on. This is so bad, meaningly that this is just one one more way to put some sort of pressure or make a statement or, you know, people say, well, Vladimir Putin doesn't care about tennis. Okay. Maybe he doesn't. Uh, but certainly the, the Russian government over the years certainly cares about sports and sports figures and takes it very seriously. Not that that would be the reason why the all England club made this decision or anybody else should make their decision. But I, I can understand it from the standpoint of the all England club you know, they're a private club. They pride themselves on doing things their way um, and not really worrying too much about what necessarily other people think, although they obviously have to deal with the ATP and the WTA and just being Wimbledon. And I think I think they, they, they thought long and hard, Peter, about this decision. And I think they just felt that this was a statement that needed to be made, um, that this was not going to happen on their watch that, you know, just by chance, a Russian or Belarusian player could win Wimbledon, for example, which could happen, you know, Medvedev Mm -hmm. on the men's side, Sabalenka was close to getting to the final last year. Uh, Now, would they have made the decision even if there were no players, you know, that had a reasonable chance? Probably, but I think that was part of it. Uh, You know, the, the possibility of, disrupting the tournament. I think that's a possibility if these players are there. I think they felt that as an issue. And I think they just just said, you know, we just think it's the right thing to do. And again, I, I totally get, I mean, I have a lot of friends, Peter. I grew up playing in the juniors and met the, these guys from the Soviet Union, which it was in those days yeah. before the wall came down. Those guys are, my, are still my friends. You know, I made right. friends with no, them as a teenager. And I, you know, I, I love those guys. I mean, you know, we, we came from totally different. That was the beauty of tennis, the beauty of tennis and the beauty of sport, but particularly tennis being as international as it is, uh, being able to see people and meet people from all over the world and become friends with them through this, you know, silly game of hitting the ball back and forth over a net. That to me is, you know, one of the things that has been the most, given me the most pleasure and most pride in my life in tennis is showing up at these tournaments and seeing people from all different backgrounds and walks of life year after year, seeing them three, four times a year, you know, giving them a hug and, you know, how's life, how's your family. Um, so I feel for those players and I really do. Uh, but I, I do think that at the end of the day, 
I think it was a it was a gutsy decision by Wimbledon, and I think at the end of the day it was a right decision. I'll be interested to see if the ATP, you know, takes any more measures as far as uh, not, you know, be giving computer points, which of course the ATP can show as a computer points um, or, or, you know, make any sort of announcement. I'll, let's see what happens. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You'd almost want to ask Nadal if he would have the same attitude if those missiles were falling on Madrid and those people were poor people were being slaughtered in Barcelona. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think that's the point. So I mean, uh, Again, it's 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 just one of those things that unfortunately we're seeing happen in our lifetime, and you know, ten. It's like it's a. I, I'm not gonna compare it to, but it's a little bit like you know we're dealing with the beginning of the pandemic, right? It's like okay, Wimbledon's not gonna happen this year. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, you know the the world is stopped. Like you know, there's more. There, this the, things were more important than you know right. Broadway shows are not happening. We're not traveling. You can't go anywhere. I mean, this is crazy, but this happened. Okay. So in other words, life moved on. We all, we thank goodness, you know, we survived, right? Like, you know, those of us in tennis, I mean, you are a writer. I mean, you couldn't go do your job. You couldn't go to tournaments. Um, I couldn't go to Australia. I still haven't been to Australia since the pandemic started, but guess what? We're still, we're still going, like we're still alive. I mean, and, <laughs> right, and exactly. me, meaning like the world will move on. I mean, if, if the Russian and Belarusians don't play Wimbledon, Wimbledon will survive. Those players will survive. Is it, is it, is it, is it too bad that they, yeah, it's too bad that they lost an opportunity, but it's freaking tennis. It's just a game. And that's all they really lost, right? was an opportunity because I mean, look, I mean, they get, you know, two and a half, three weeks, three weeks off essentially when they just, can't play, but they could be living the high life on a French Riviera or wherever. And that's a little bit different from what the Ukrainian players are going to be experiencing or their families at home. I think it's a hard call. Uh, again, I, I don't think it's going to change, even though I'm sure the ATP and the WTA are, you know, meeting with Wimbledon this, you know, once they made the decision, it's done, I feel. Um, and, uh, you know, you just hope that let's hope that the, 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 the war ends, you know, fairly as soon as possible and they can start to rebuild there. It doesn't appear that it's going to happen anytime soon. Unfortunately, I guess the only other question to this Pete is do, do any other tournaments do this, something similar? Nobody else is even, you never heard a peep. I mean, the French opens going on the Italian open just happened. You know, the U S swing will be coming up after Wimbledon in the summer. Will the USTA make that kind of decision? I, you know That's what? Very interesting I, th- I think it's an issue. I doubt it. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, maybe will there be, you know, what happens if the war takes an, you know, even worse turn, if that's possible, um, pressure building on the government and so on. And so, I mean, these are things that, uh, I mean, we're in, we're in uncharted territory. That's clear. That's absolutely right. Well, that's been very edifying, Patrick. Anything else we need to talk about or? Um, uh, I, I will be going over to Paris for my friends with BNP Paribas because they, as you know, sponsor our McEnroe Academy. So I'm going over Mm -hmm. for a couple of days, which I'm looking forward to not, um, with me. Of course, ESPN doesn't cover it anymore. Will you be going or will you be covering it from home? No, I'm, I'm covering it from home. Basically I'll be tracking the stuff. I'll be reading the transcripts doing like, uh, yeah, right. Like we've been doing first week. Yeah, exactly. 
Which I enjoy. The traveling ultimately, as you know, can get pretty wearing. <laughs> I know it too well. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, listen, I thank you. Uh, did we cover everything you wanted to cover? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We're, we're, we're good. Um, great as always. Good, good stuff. Now I'm going to have to transcribe, which is always a pain, but I'm not going to blame it on everyone else. Well, I have it, I have it all on tape. So if you, need, you missed anything, I, you know what? I'll send it to you. This is what I'll do. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get this thing turned around because I'm going to put it out as a podcast and I will get uh-huh. it turned around as quickly as possible and I will send it to you. Uh, good. Well, you know, I, do, I, I taped it myself. So unless you have oh. a written transcript, I can just take it off my own machine. Oh, no, okay. if, I, you're, you're, if something went wrong, I'll let you know. All right. Sounds good. The great Peter Bodo, everyone, interviewing me. And I'm, well, sort of interviewing him, but we'll do that another time as well uh, here on Holding Court. Thank you, Pete. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Patrick. Yeah. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media. Mudhouse Media.